Major Ian Thomas wrote in one of his books to his readers to imagine that some aliens from another planet get the idea that they want to know God. And they've heard a rumor throughout the galaxies that humans on earth were made in his image. And that you can look at human beings and should be able to tell something about Almighty God. And so they gather in a spaceship and they come to the earth and they visit. And they start drawing conclusions from the behavior in the words that they see about the character and the nature of God. Now, I don't believe in life and other planets, but let's just imagine that it is so. What do you think that they would learn from visiting earth about our God? What conclusions would they draw if they visited downtown Athens on the weekend? What conclusions would they draw if they went to the state capitol or Congress? What conclusions would they draw if they came to church? Well, people attend meetings and eat a lot. Would they see much more? Would any of them see the grandeur of Almighty God? Would anyone see of the aliens the passion for God, for the world, and His faith that a church can make a definitive impact upon the whole globe? Would they see the splendor and the brilliance and the almighty nature of Almighty God? Abram got a, test, a, a taste of that, excuse me, in Genesis chapter 17. Here in this text, uh, Abram learns that God is Almighty God. Now, I'm doing something this morning that I've never done before in my ministry, and that is I delivered this text on Wednesday night during our evening ser- service. Y'all know we meet Wednesday nights, by the way, right? Uh, I uh, delivered this text, and I was asked by a dear member I respect greatly to preach it again on Sunday morning. So I've revised the message and I have uh, dug into it more. I'd already prepared a message on on chapter 18 and 19. So if this goes a little short, don't worry. I've got another sermon prepared for you this morning. Really, don't worry. Don't worry. I'll I'll deliver that too, okay? Uh, From chapter 18 and 19. So, um, you know, I I, I could keep you till about 1.30. That'll be fine. So don't worry. I I can do that if this goes too uh, short. But in Genesis chapter 17, God pulls off a tremendous transition with Abram, and Abram learns that God is El Shaddai, God Almighty, God Superior, God who has all the might. Beginning in chapter 17 and verse 1, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am Almighty God, walk before me and be blameless, or everything committed to me, everything yielded to me. And I will make a covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. Now, no longer shall your name be called Abram, prince or exalted father, but your name shall be called Abraham, For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. 
Also, I give, I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession, and I will be your God. God is El Shaddai in verse 1. He is almighty. He has all the power, all the kingdom, all the glory, or as I like to translate it, he's not only God Almighty, he is the God who is always enough. He is always enough. Well, how is that the case? Well, first, God, Almighty God, is good enough. Almighty God is good enough. Verse number one says, I am Almighty God. Walk before me blameless, walk before me and be blameless. Now, this is a remarkable commandment. He's telling Abraham, you can be blameless from this point on, and that's on the heels of chapter 16 that we have seen earlier. In chapter 16, Abraham ruined his life in the entire Middle East. And 4,000 years of history have not been able to untangle the snarl that he and Sarai and Hagar initiated with uh, their scheme to bring Abraham, a descendant, into the world. From that was born Ishmael, the father of the Arab people, and the Arabs and the Jews have been at war ever since. And it's going to get worse in the text by chapter, 20 and, by chapter 21. So Abraham engaged in this behavior. He became polygamous. He had a son by another woman. And as a result, he has launched the world into all manner of chaos and viciousness and untold atrocities since then. And yet, look what God says in verse 1. I'm God Almighty. I know you failed, but I'm the God who's enough. Walk before me. Listen, no matter how bad you have ruined things, it is never to the point where you cannot still walk with God. And not only that, but he says, be blameless. In other words, let the totality of your life be surrendered to me. It's not necessarily moral perfection and impossibility, but instead, every area of your life is before me and is without blame before me. When, when you get dirty, when you get filthy, when you drift from me, come back, we can make it blameless all over again. No matter how badly you have messed it up, you can walk before God and you can have the totality of your life completely surrendered to Him because God, El Shaddai, Almighty, is good enough. He's willing to transfer that to you. He's willing to give you that power and make a difference in your life. In other words, God is good enough to put you back on track with Him. Failure is never final. It is never the end. Failure and sin and grief and self-made sorrow does not have to have the final word before God. He can have the final word because He is good enough. And I've got good news for you. No matter how you've struggled, because God shares His goodness and His power, because of that, you can do anything in the will of God. Whatever He wants you to do. You can do that in every area of your life. The areas where you've embarrassed yourself, the areas where you've struggled, the areas that have caused you untold grief, it can be a new day because El Shaddai is good enough. But that's not all. He's not only good enough, but the text goes on and teaches us that he is clear enough. El Shaddai is clear enough. I have a dear sweet friend that I finished college with who for more than 30 years now since we graduated has been one 
uh, confusing episode in his life. He's uh, had two uh, very difficult, very tragic marriages that have weighed on him and uh, cost him an awful lot of peace of mind. In addition to that, he's had about a new job every year since we graduated college. I'm serious. Now, he's uh, got an independent income where he makes some money on some rental property, but truth is is that he'll start a new job uh, to make some extra money, and it's the greatest thing in the world for a couple of months. And then he starts asking questions, and after about eight or nine months, it's the worst place in the world to work, and he's done that about 30 times. He might need to sell his rental property. (laughs) I don't know. He's made too secure by that. But I keep looking at a dear, dear friend, and I see so much confusion. Do you know God does not expect you to live that way? Life does not have to be a revolving series of confusing, heartbreaking realities. You don't have to get it wrong. Chapter 17, verse 3, look what God said to Abraham. Then Abraham, or Abram, fell on his face And God talked with him. God spoke something direct to him, and later on he will as well. Abraham will want his descendant of promise, through whom the Messiah will come, to be Ishmael, his son from chapter 16, who was born 13 years before. He's got great affection for Ishmael, and we should too, for his descendants, because Abraham did and God does. But uh, Abraham will ask God, Look, I don't want another son. I want Ishmael to be the son of promise through whom comes the nation and the kings and the Messiah. Would you do that? And look at verse number 18. And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Then God said, No, Sarah your wife shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. Do you see how particular and defined God is here when he speaks to Abraham. Do you see? What God does is he tells him, no, Sarah will have the son. Not just any woman in the world of the multiplied possibilities, but Sarah. And God gets so particular and so precise and so detailed in how he directs Abraham. He even gives Abraham the boy's name, Isaac. Do you know God can give you that specific guidance about your life? Do you know that He's willing to do that? Do you know God is willing to specify and identify your mate? Do you know God is willing to specify and identify your major? Do you know God is willing to specify and identify your work and your labor? Do you know God is willing to specify and identify how to handle a conflict and how to resolve it and make it all better? Do you know God directs His people? God is not in the business of playing hide-and-go-seek with His will. In other words, Christians do not have to live in perpetual darkness. Christians can live in perpetual light. They do not have to endure an endless series of disappointing romances, disappointing jobs, disappointing investments, and disappointing family conflicts, they can instead walk in the very light and counsel of Almighty God in every step of the way. You can get all the big decisions right in many, many of the small decisions. Now, I'm not going to offer you the promise that you'll get every decision right, but if you get a decision wrong, trust me, it will not be because God has failed you. 
It will not be because God has failed to direct you. It, it, it'll be because of something personal. Uh, you'll get, your, your will will get in the way or you'll get distracted or something else. But whenever a Christian makes a mistake, it is not due to a lack of light or communication from God. God has never fumbled shepherding his people. He is clear enough. And so life does not have to be an endless series of confusing and disappointing decisions. God's people can get it right. So, why has my life been a series of disappointing decisions? Well, this morning, uh, if uh, I was inclined to, I could give you about five principles for making good decisions in God's will. And, and one day I may. I have in the past, and I may do it in the future. But what I want to tell you is this. There is one single thing you can do that if you're willing to wait on God, if you're willing to seek good counsel, if you're willing to stay within the boundaries of the Word of God, you will get your decisions right every time. One thing. Surrender. If you will surrender to what God wants for you, you will get the decisions right. Well, I've surrendered and I, I haven't got it right. Well, listen, God probably told you and you're not willing to do what He told you. God doesn't fail. Surrender. Yield. Bow it all. When you do, God is always faithful to give guidance. Uh, surrender to His timing. Surrender to His wishes. Surrender to the largeness, the, the, the big vision He may have for you, or the small one. Whatever it may be, simply surrender and tell God, God, I'm going to do what you want me to do before I know what it will cost me. You see, some people, what they want to do is they want to know what God wants them to do first so they can negotiate and bargain and figure out what they're going to do. God doesn't speak to that kind of frivolous person, that kind of recklessness, that kind of stubbornness. Oh, no, listen, when you come to God and you want to know His will, you don't have multiple options. What God wants you to do, what you want to do, what your family wants you to do, what friends want you to do, etc. You don't have those multiple options and come before God and say, God, tell me what you want me to do so I can make a decision. No, when you come before God, the decision's made. You say, God, my only option is to do what you want me to do. And I surrender it all. And some of you need to do that today at the end of the message. God's God speaking to your heart about coming to know Christ and yielding your sin and guilt to Him because of His cross and resurrection and to follow Him in baptism and to become a serious, faithful follower of Jesus Christ within the context of this church. That's where you need to begin. And, and then there may be something else. But today is the day. We've got a decision to make. Are we going to continue this endless series of disappointing decisions? Are we going to go with God and live in victory in Jesus Christ? Because God is clear enough. He's good enough. But there's a third thing in the text. And that is, God is strong enough. Now, my jaw drops, and I see an awful lot of wow moments in verses 4 through 8. This is huge. The issues that are dealt with here in verses 4 through 8, are among some of the largest ever to be presented to any personality in the Scripture. They are incredibly large. And God promises Abraham that as I deal with your descendants, 
that what I'm going to do is I'm going to deal and take care of these large issues, and I am going to act in every one of these issues as Almighty God. I'm going to act as El Shaddai. I'm going to act as a God who is enough. And now, all these millenniums later, after God made the promise, we can look back and see how God fulfilled every one of them. One of the latest in 1948, when Israel became a nation again. It's one of the most remarkable things that you will ever know and research in the Word of God. Here he says, I'm going to act as Almighty God, as the God who is strong enough to your descendants in their generation. In their beginning, verse 4 and 5. Look what it says there. Now, by the way, in verse 1 and 2, how old is Abraham? He's 99. God made him the first promise here that he's reiterating here 24 years before. And here's what he says in verse 4. As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you, you got one son in this world. You shall be the father, what? Of many nations. In fact, God is so emphatic with Abraham becoming the father of many nations, he changes his name to father of many nations. Can you imagine Abraham going to his 300 ranch hands, walking into their tent and saying, from now on, fellas, you got to call me a different name. Well, what is it? Well, it's been Abram, exalted father or prince, now you're going to call me father of many nations. If anyone is drinking a Diet Dr. Pepper, that's a Diet Dr. Pepper moment through the nose. That's exactly what it is. Are you kidding me? You've got one son. You're an old man. From an older man, God brought about the nation of Israel. Age is absolutely no limit for any child of God. And it can't be. Now, I know and understand and sympathize with some of the discouragement that comes about with age. There's just so many losses that come the older you get. You lose spouses. You, you lose health. You lose friends. You lose family. You lose traditions. You lose, and the pace of change picks up. And, and I've got news for you. If you place your hope in these things, you're going to be constantly disappointed because the pace of change is not going to slow down in our world. And there's no way that you can hold on to everything that's precious to you and not lose something. That's why you don't hold on to it. You give it to God and you hold on to God because you can't lose Him if you know Jesus. Abram said, or God said to Abraham, in your latter years, you're going to become the father of many nations. A nation, a whole nation is going to generate from you. Well, Sarah would die, and in chapter 25, he'll marry Keturah and have a lot more sons and bring them into the world. And so he's the father of the Arab nations, 422 million today. He's the father of Israel, and then all those other boys in chapter 25. And what came from them about 4,000 years ago? Well, that's precisely what happened. Though at these end of days, Abraham is 99 years old. And so God acted as Almighty God, the God who is strong enough in their generation. But then their exaltation. He said, I'll make you exceedingly fruitful. Do you know how many of Abraham's descendants win the Nobel Peace Prize or the Nobel Prize for 
uh, literature or science or these other awards, there is a disproportionate amount of Abraham's descendants among the Jews who win these awards on an annual basis. It is just remarkable the enormous contribution to science and literature and philosophy that Abraham's descendants have been to the world. They have been fruitful. And so God will act as Almighty God and the God who's strong enough in their generation, their exaltation, their multiplication. I'll make many nations of you, and even kings will come from you. And then their regeneration, verse 7, I will establish my covenant between me and your descendants after you and their generations for an everlasting covenant. Beginning in about 1970, the rate of Jewish evangelism and conversion began to pick up in the Middle East and around the world. And it's a remarkable story, their, uh, their regeneration, their conversion. Then their preservation, verse number 7. I will be God to you and your descendants uh, after you, in the phrase before, for an everlasting covenant. I will look after them forever and forever, everlasting. Haman's gallows could not eliminate the Jewish nation. He sent an Esther to intervene. Goliath could not eliminate the Jewish nation. Pharaoh could not eliminate the Jewish nation. The Red Sea could not stop the Jewish nation. Jonah's whale couldn't stop the Jewish nation. Adolf Hitler could not eliminate the entire Jewish nation. It's not likely anyone else will either. God has preserved them through the generations. And that's what he promises here because he has an everlasting covenant with them. And then verse 8, their restoration. Also, I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan, which they received back in 1948, defended in 1967, and continue to do today. God has fulfilled this promise. Now look, I want you to notice this. This is terribly, terribly important if you need a mission and service in life. If you're interested in church ministry and anything that goes with it, these are the kind of large issues, and these are the kinds of words you would expect Almighty God to speak. In other words, the large issues, the kinds of issues that he's dealing with here, the words that he's speaking are worthy of a God who claims to be God Almighty. El Shaddai, the God who is enough. Now here's what, how I want to put it. These words and these promises fit God. They did not fit Abraham at this moment. I mean, you can't look at Abraham and see kings and nations coming from him. You cannot see this protection of the people that would come from him generation after generation. You don't see that in Abraham. These words are not appropriate for Abraham. They are appropriate for God. And they're not appropriate for Abraham at that moment, but they are appropriate for Abraham's descendants after him in the future. Now listen, when I find a good tennis shoe deal, uh, I buy several pairs of them for the boys. I do. And I buy sizes that are larger than what they're currently wearing. Because the shoe doesn't fit at that moment, I know it will fit in the future. With my 14-year-old, probably the next 10 minutes, fast as I grow. But that's what I do. I look out for shoe deals, and I buy shoes that are larger than what they need right then. And I can pretty well anticipate how big, especially Luke's feet, are going to be one day. 
uh, in, in the next size. And so I'm preparing for the future. So the shoe, listen, the shoe doesn't fit at the moment, but it will fit in the future. And that's how God deals with the people, a church, a Christian. What God is moving on you to do today may entirely intimidate you. It may be an enormous challenge to you. You may say, this doesn't fit me, and God would respond, it doesn't fit you now, but I'm looking at your future. You're going to fit it eventually. You don't see all the work I'm going to do with you between now and then. So here in the text, God's will looked nothing like Abraham, but it looked everything like Almighty God. It looked exactly like God did. So God's will, God's will, when he shows it and when he introduces it to us, may look nothing like us, but it will look everything like him. So expect a moment when you look at God's will and say, oh my goodness, there's no way I can do this. If you're at that moment, that may very well be the will of God, though it may not fit you. It it, it may do that with your life, your heart, your soul. I remember back in December of 1989 when God laid on my heart I was going to marry this girl. It scared the daylights out of me. And I tried to run from it for six weeks. I was overwhelmed with the responsibility. I thought, how in the world am I going to contain all that energy? And I haven't. I've enjoyed it. And I thought, that doesn't fit me. The same is true with the vocation. The same is true with um, a large number of issues in our life. It's true also for a church when they call staff. It's also true for a church whenever they think about buildings. We don't do necessarily what fits now. We do God's will because it will fit in the future. And that's what we've got to keep in mind. God always gives us shoes that may be a size or two larger when we do His will. Because God is strong enough. And you have to understand, God's not trying to accommodate your weakness. God is not accommodating your weakness. God is doing things that are entirely consistent with the God who calls himself El Shaddai, God Almighty, the God who is strong enough. That's what God does. Almighty God is strong enough. So you've got to make a decision. Am I going to continue to underperform? where the most exciting thing I do for God is attend a covered dish lunch? Or am I going to venture with God who does wonders and does wonders in my life? So Almighty God is strong enough. But there's a fourth thing in the text, and that is Almighty God is worthy enough. Now I read read here in the text from verse 9 to the end of the chapter, and I, I must tell you I tremble. It's painful. Uh, Not necessarily negative, but it's painful. Because God commands Abraham to go public with this commitment he made back in chapter number 12. And he does that with circumcision. Now, we're mature here, and I will be delicate, but this was serious stuff, and it's dominated Jewish thinking all these centuries later. He said, I want you to engage the males in your home in circumcision. Now, these were not all infants. I don't know that there's a single infant in the home. These are grown men, or at least teenagers. And he commands circumcision in the text. Can you imagine that conversation? Walking into the tents of the ranch hands, and he announces to them what God has said, and they say, you're going to do what? 
It was not all that common there. It was practiced among some peoples in those days. But can you imagine the conversation that takes place? I remember when the doctor came to us and told us in the hospital what they'd be doing to our boys. I, I got dizzy thinking about it. And that's no less difficult here. And there, there is not a sterile environment here. There, there are no surgeons. There are no medical instruments at all. And this is what they do. So God presents himself and introduces himself as the God who is worthy of physical pain. And then verse 18 to 21, Abraham really wants Ishmael, the son for whom he has great affection. He wants him to be the son of promise, the child of promise. He's got great affection for him. He's poured his life out for the boy. And you can sympathize with him. But God says to him, no. The son of promise that will eventually bring the Messiah into the world is going to come not from Hagar's body, but from Sarah's. Sarah's going to be the mother. That's how I want it. And God didn't explain it. God didn't answer a bunch of questions. God just said, this is how we're going to do it. Because he is God who is worthy enough. And so he's not only worthy of physical pain, he's also worthy of Ishmael's demotion, a family demotion. Can you imagine that conversation? Can you imagine that announcement? And what Hagar and Ishmael took from Abraham's announcement. God is worthy of both. He puts himself forward and introduces himself as the God who is worthy enough. And you know, what we've just done is that we've really begun a trajectory for the Christian life. Jesus will say, if anyone come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Deny himself. Well, what's the tone and temper of our age? Don't deny yourself, but find yourself and fulfill yourself. And the cross of Jesus Christ says garbage. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Deny yourself and kill yourself, figuratively. Kill your opinion. Kill your aspirations. Kill anything your heart clutches to that is outside the will of God. Kill it. Kill goals and dreams and aspirations and replace every one of them with a cross. And then follow me. Discipline yourself. Some of that message is found right here when he says, demote Ishmael and endure physical pain. That's what we do. A genuine Christian life is a series of cuts and demotions. Now, Paul later in Galatians 3 will talk about this passage. And he will say that this is an excellent symbol of salvation, not baptism. Some of the denominations get it really confused, and that's why they sprinkle infants. And that's not what the Scripture teaches. The Scripture teaches only, adult, only uh, those who've been converted need to follow Christ in baptism by immersion by their own choice, not what someone else chooses for them. 
And so circumcision is not a type of New Testament baptism, but it is a type of New Testament salvation. Because what the Bible teaches is that when Christ comes into your heart and life, He cuts away your guilt before God. He cuts away your insecurity about death and the grave and hell. He cuts away hopelessness. He cuts away darkness. And so you begin the Christian life by yielding yourself up to God and saying, Oh God, I know I'm guilty. Would you please, because of Jesus' death and resurrection, cut it all away? And then the Christian life is not only a series of cuts. It is also a series of demotions. Oh God, demote me. Demote my will. Demote my emotions. Devote, uh, demote my distractions. Demote everything about me under you. I yield it all to you. You filter out what you do not want. Keep what you would like to use. But God, demote me and exalt Jesus over it all. Exalt Him over all. That is precisely what the Christian life is. It, it, it begins with a cut and a demotion. And it continues with a series of cuts and demotions. That's what God intends to do in our lives. And I want to make it very loud and very clear, very plain. This God is worthy of it all. He's worthy enough. Have you ever had surgery? I have. My first surgery, I've had two, but my first one was an appendectomy. And it was somewhat ambiguous about what I was facing. I didn't have any sharp pains. I had generalized pain from my shoulders uh, down to the bottom of my torso. And uh, so there was some confusion about what I was facing. And what had happened is that my appendix had not ruptured. It, it had gone gangrene. And so they got me to the doctor the next day, and it was tough. All I remember is being wheeled into the emergency room and being placed on a table with a spinal block. They didn't even put me under. A spinal block, and I look up, and there's my baseball coach. And for a moment, I thought, what is he doing in the room? And the surgeon, well, he was a surgeon. I forgot that. <laughs> but that's how messed up I was. I was messed up. And uh, the next thing I remember is waking up several hours later with my parents standing over me, very worried and very concerned. And um, what happened was is that the thing had gone gangrene and had poisoned me. And so they never sewed up the incision. They had to drain it and pack it and all that. I, I don't want to gross you out, but uh, I'm afraid I already have. But um, I um, uh, had to go weeks uh, before that thing finally closed up. And I've, I've got a, a scar that looks like someone took a bazooka and aimed it towards me. I mean, it's just ugly. I know you find that hard to believe, but it's, it's ugly. I got something ugly on me. But um, uh, as difficult as the surgery was, as urgent as it was, and um, as ugly as the outcome was. I mean, I missed the all-star team because I couldn't play the rest of the baseball season. Over that. That's how bad it was. But despite how bad all of that was, cutting out, that appendix was one of the best things that ever happened to me. It saved my life. We have some gangrene guilt before God because of our sins. We haven't thought right, we thought wrong. We haven't felt right, we felt wrong. We haven't had the right motives, we've had the wrong ones. We haven't always had the right behavior, we've had the wrong ones. 
we uh, have not done what we are to do, and we've done some things we're not supposed to. And the Bible says, there is none righteous, no, not one. That's what we've had. And so we're gangrene before God. One of the best things that could happen to us is to invite Christ into our lives, and He comes cutting all of that away before God and healing it up. That's the kind of Savior that He is. And He'll begin to do that with you if you will demote yourself. Demote self. Demote self-righteousness. Stop believing that you're okay with God. Stop believing that. If you've not come to Christ, that's not true. And God doesn't accept us just as we are. That's not true. He accepts us only when we come into Jesus Christ. And you can come as you are as long as you're coming to Christ. He'll accept you then. I want to assure you of that. But God does not have a generalized acceptance of the human race. You've got to come to Jesus Christ. He said, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And he knew the subject better than any of us. And so we stop being self-righteous. We, we stop being self-confident that our virtue and goodness before God is acceptable. No, there's none righteous. No, not one. If that's where you are and you can tr trust the death and resurrection of Christ for you, God wants you to come to Him. He invites you to. He wants you to. And He will not only cleanse you and make you clean and cut away that which is guilty and awful in His sight, He'll also adopt you into the family. And he'd love to do that today. It's so important to him that that happens to you today that he slaughtered Jesus Christ at the cross like a sacrifice and raised him from the dead. Let's pray about it. Father, thank you in Jesus' name for the good news of the gospel. We bless you for it.